and it is What's Involved. Great to have you along with us. Uh, another guest this week, is, as always, special guest, because we always get special guests in. This one touched particularly close to home, though. The lady has just written a book. Who is she? Who are we going to be talking to? It is Alison Tucker, author of My Best Worst Year, A Breast Cancer Story. Hello, Alison. Good morning, David. How are you today? Good. It's lovely to have you on the show with us. I must admit, when I, when I first saw the book, I thought, okay, well, this is not going to be you know, very relevant to me, but you know, it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. I'll, I'll give it a, a quick whirl. And goodness yeah. gracious me. Um, are you a first-time author? I am a first-time author. That's right. And author felt like too lofty a word to attribute to myself. So one of my big learnings was that we label ourselves of what we are and what we aren't. And that's so self-limiting because now I've claimed um, the word author in the same way I had to claim the, the word um, cancer patient. Both were quite difficult at first to okay. integrate. Well, I, I'm, we're going to dive into that and, and we're going to get there because it's, it's an absolutely, as I said, it's a bit of a roller coaster book for me in, in certain, uh, certain times and certain places in the book, but we'll, we'll touch on all of that. First, tell me a little bit about Alison. Where, where were you born? What did you do? Because you weren't always a breast cancer survivor. No. Uh, David, I grew up in the Eastern Cape after originally completing my first two years in Namibia, first two years of school. And um, so I'm a typical Eastern Cape small town, being East London girl. And when I finished my schooling there, I went to, to Rhodes and I studied um, psychology and business studies and I was having such a fun time in Grahamstown that I ended up staying and doing my, my honours and my master's as well. And then the small town girl had to find a job and I was fortunate enough to be um, taken on board on the Unilever graduate um, recruitment program. So I drove up to Durban feeling very emotional leaving the Eastern Cape and I've been in Durban for literally my, uh, all my years since then and it's many years now. So I've been a, a marketeer working in Unilever and then in a global consultancy. And I started my own consultancy about um, seven years ago. So at the moment, I do project work on all kinds of things to do with marketing, like innovation and brand positioning and strategy development. So that was my day job. Um, and then I, I found myself thrown into this predicament the day before Christmas in 2016. So, and I thought I would have to stop working, but I was very fortunate. I had... Um, a very good year and I was able to carry on working. So I ended up doing my consulting work and then writing this, this book that's a, a sort of gift of gratitude um, for others um, at the same time. In my spare time, I've got many passions. One of the big ones is traveling. So I love going to new countries for the first time and going into far-flung corners that maybe other people haven't ventured to. We're armed with a camera as well as I love food and I love wine, probably love food too much. Um, and I love exercise. So just staying active is a big part of my, my world as well. Fantastic. So that's me. Great. Well, that's, that's a lovely intro. But now let's, let's get on to this because as far as, as, as I can see, you were, you were doing very, very well in the corporate world and your, your own business that you started was, was doing well. What led you to, to go, hang on, there, there, there is a problem here. You know, did you go for a mammogram? Because I know... A lot of things, you know, a lot of times we talk about breast cancer awareness and, and 
for, for the ladies, we talk about going for your mammogram regularly, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. But so many people don't do it. How did you find out? That's exactly it. The, the saying, um, early detection saves lives, sort of washes over us. I know even for myself, before I had cancer, when I used to hear that expression, it was an expression that was familiar to me, but I don't think it ever really hit home what a big difference it does make if you're diagnosed early. But in my personal case, my sister had had uh, breast cancer about 25 years before me at the age in her mid-30s. And um, in fact, it was her second bout with cancer. So cancer was something our family, family were sort of literate about. And um, so I, as a consequence of that, I knew I was at high risk and I used to go for mammograms from the age of 30. And in this, this particular year, 2016, um, I was due to have my mammogram in December. I always used to save it for that time as work started winding down and getting a little bit easier. But um, it, was, it could have been a month or two months before that. I can't actually recall exactly. And I felt this unusual sort of mass on the side of my right breast. It was different to anything I'd felt before. You know, before I'd felt almost like a contained lump that would move around if I touched it. And um, so I had had two biopsies before. And in those cases, they were benign. The one was called a, a, a thing called a fibroadenoma. But this time it just felt different. It was this hard mess that was going nowhere, just stationary. So I went for the, the mammogram um, on the 22nd of December. And straight away they did an ultrasound, as they often do uh, with me. And the next day I had my biopsy. And the very next day I got the news that it was, was indeed um, breast cancer. So that was my Christmas gift, the day before Christmas. So that's how I found out. Wow. So the day before Christmas. And then, and then obviously you go into that, that holiday period. But Alison, yes. what did it feel like then? Did, did, it, did it feel like, okay, yeah, I've expected this? Or was it still a huge blow? David, it was quite unusual because I think deep down, I sort of always expected that it could happen. But when it did happen, I was almost like a... Yeah, a bunny looking into headlamps. So I went on to autopilot, and um, as most of my friends know, um, when I put the phone down from taking the call, I should mention it's not normally a telephone. Normally you would be sitting face-to-face -face with a doctor. But in my case, because of the time of the year, I got permission to get them by telephone. But I put the phone down, and I had just got out the shower to answer the phone. I was standing naked with the phone in my hand, and I thought, I've got a hair appointment in 10 minutes' time. So I just got dressed and went to the hairdresser. And once I sat in the Christmas chair, that's when it really hit me. And I thought, oh, my heavens, I've got cancer. It's Christmas tomorrow. I've got a lovely holiday to Thailand coming up in two sleeps time. What am I going to do? Um, and I was, I was in, to some extent, I was quite glad that I was sitting in the hairdresser's chair where it was very noisy. Because at that point, I realized I had to start telling people, but I wasn't ready to actually talk to people. So I messaged and as people then try to phone me back, I'd send a message back saying, it's noisy where I am, I can't talk. And that for me is one of the lessons that when, when someone is diagnosed with cancer, um, often they just feel like they can't speak to people. So messaging is sometimes better than you know, trying to phone them and speak to them directly. And then it took me a while to feel like I was taking full ownership of the illness. Once I could say my oncologist and I could say, I have cancer, then I knew I had taken ownership of it and I would have to deal with it in the best possible any way that I could. 
Wow, because I, I, I can only imagine. I mean, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that you try and imagine what somebody must feel like, but unless you've actually gone through it, I don't think you can adequately prepare for the kind of shock it is and, and the fact that one way or another, your life is going to change. From the moment you put that phone down, you at some stage had to accept your life was going to change. What, what, was, the, what, David. what was the protocols, though, that they, that they suggested that you go through? So when um, I was uncertain, I thought, no, I'm going on holiday, but I said, do I cancel my holiday? And then um, a friend who's in the medical profession said to me, you know, all the medical staff are actually on holiday themselves. Everything's shut down. It's the middle of Christmas, New Year. I suggest you go on holiday and then uh, maybe come back earlier. So instead of going for three weeks, I came back after two weeks. And the day after I got back, I had my first um, oncologist and my surgeon appointment. And for someone who had never, ever, you know, I never used to get flu. I never had the common cold. To be sitting in front of a surgeon and then in front of an oncologist felt like such a foreign world to me. But nevertheless, um, that's how the process started. And I went through, what was comforting is I was told that I'd be going through the same treatment protocol, regardless of whether I would be, was living in New York, Paris, Sydney, London, anyway. So that was quite comforting to know that um, I would be getting the same protocol as I would in a fully first world country, so to speak. Um, it was a long innings and there was a slight curve ball because I didn't expect to have the chemotherapy. So my expectation was that I would have a surgery and then have um, radiation and that would be it, and it would be all. It would all be over quickly. But unfortunately, once they had the the tissue samples after the surgery, in the lab, they discovered a, a small deposit of cancer cells outside the lymph um, that they removed from my armpit. And so, when the oncologist said to me, "Alison, if you were my sister or my mother, I would insist you had chemotherapy." At that point, I knew I had no choice. So that was a, that was the, the lowest point of the entire experience the day I learned that I was going to have to have chemo because, and I think that's what people fear. And when, when you're a woman and you hear that straight away, you think my hair, I'm going to lose my hair. So that is, that was probably, as I said, the, the lowest point of the, the foot experience. That's, that's one of the things that you talk about in, in, in the book is, is, is losing hair and you talk about wigs, etc. But uh, just let me understand. So, so did, did you have to have a mastectomy? No, so I was very fortunate. I was a candidate for what they call um, breast conserving surgery or a lumpectomy. And these days, the surgeons prefer to do a lumpectomy plus radiotherapy if they can get away with it. Not everyone can, unfortunately, but I was a fortunate one. And the, the recurrence rate is the same for a mastectomy as it is for a lumpectomy plus radiotherapy. So, and with a lumpectomy, you're unlikely to have as many complications from surgery because a mastectomy is more invasive as, as surgery goes. But as a woman, when you're first diagnosed, all you want to do is just remove your breasts. You know, it's like, just get them off. Um, yeah. And it's important for people to know that in these days, um, that isn't always the only solution. So, um, yeah, so I have a, had a lumpectomy and, um, and uh, that, that always comes with radiotherapy as far as I understand. Wow. And I was also fortunate I didn't have to have reconstruction, which I know for women is quite a challenging thing. Although, of course, the moment it does go through your head, oh, maybe I'm going to get a perky new pair. <laughs> that didn't happen either. <laughs> I, can, I can only imagine. I mean, and, and at some stage, 
because of the seriousness of, of cancer, that, that you need to have some light moments. But there's also some deep moments and some, some fairly yes. dark moments. We'll talk more about that when we come back. My special guest is Alison Tucker, author of My Best Worst Year, A Breast Cancer Story. We'll be back in a bit. And we're back with my special guest, Alison Tucker, author of My Best Worst Year. It's a great title, that, Alison. I, I love that, My Best Worst Year, A Breast Cancer Story. And, and the reason that the book came about, though, you didn't set out and go, okay, well, I've, I've now been diagnosed with breast cancer, so I'm going to write a book. Uh, talk to me, how did the book process happen? So, David, when I was first diagnosed, first of all, I thought, oh, well, I'm going to die. Um, then I also thought, well, my whole life's going to come to a standstill and I'm going to be curled up in bed um, for some months or for the rest of my life. And I was so pleasantly surprised that um, the experience wasn't nearly as bad as I anticipated. I was also surprised that I could lead quite a productive life. So I carried on exercising. I carried on working in between my treatment. But a big part of that was um, getting into a mindset of gratitude. So the day before I started my first chemotherapy session, I had gone for a cycle on the beachfront and I was working out some angst and um, I thought, oh, this is so good. I'm going to go further than I normally go. And I had a flat tire, a puncture. So I had to push the bike back to the gym and I was muttering under my breath. And I thought to myself, if this is how you cope with such an insignificant, a little negative um, thing that's thrown your way, how are you going to get through cancer treatment? So I decided to try and think of something positive every day in a way of keeping myself upbeat and um, in a positive uh, mindset. So that led to me starting um, what I refer to as my gratitude album on just a simple album on Facebook. But every day of my treatment, I used to put up a collage or a visual of sorts with some copies so of words or story with it. That was something or someone that I was grateful for. And um, over time, I realized that I, started, I had started demystifying cancer and breast cancer for, for others. So I started get a, getting a following, not all of which were friends, even beyond friends, you know, people being referred to me who had been diagnosed. And it became quite a thing. In fact, it was quite onerous at times because I would go out, say, for a food and wine pairing evening or go out for a social evening, and I'd get back and it would be two minutes to midnight, and my phone would be pinging with messages, people saying, is everything okay? You haven't posted your gratitude today. So I realized that it was resonating with others. And, you know, I had done it for myself, but the positive spin-off benefits were so, so widespread that I knew I had to put this, this bad situation to good use. So then I, I was um, giving advice and tips and learning from other patients who'd been diagnosed, um, some, you know, around the world even, women I never actually met, just through messaging and through chatting. And I thought, I'm so scared that as time moves on, I forget some of the tips and some of the things I learned. So let me write about it. It'll also make it easier because I felt like I was repeating myself. So if someone phoned me and said, well, I'm going through chemotherapy and I've got questions, I could just take that section on chemo and send it to them. So it started off what I called my writing. And um, after some time and with a lot of encouragement from others, I started referring to it as my manuscript. And then the next thing, boom, it touched Tracy and Tracy offered to publish it, Tracy McDonald. So, boom, I was to be a published author, which was um, a shock and a delight. In fact. <laughs> so that's, that's how the book was born. And it's been a big learning 
learning process for me. Um, it's been a, just great learning new processes and new things and experimenting and um, and yeah, I've really enjoyed it. You know, there's, there's, I, I always laugh and I joke about this. There's, there's so many authors who's, who sort of, you know, they start off with "I met Tracy McDonald" or "Tracy McDonald yes. asked," and and you know, um, I've I've been trying to get Tracy on the show forever, but uh, she manages to sidestep it all the time. But one day, <laughs> one day, I'm going to win, and we'll be able to talk to her because she truly is a, a phenomenal person. But Alison, writing all of this stuff down and going through the process of the, 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 the surgery and then the radiation, et cetera, et cetera. There must, there must have been up days, down days. I know some people, when they get diagnosed with cancer, they do exactly what, what you, you said earlier on, is they, they sort of crawl into their shell. They don't yes. look for the bright side. They don't look for the positive. And, you know, a lot of people don't know how to deal with somebody who is living with cancer. Yes. Uh, do you offer help? Do you not? What is your experience in that? Yes. Um, David, you are so right. Um, people are often so focused on the patient themselves that they forget how difficult it is for the people around them. So one, one example of something I've come across um, through the cancer communities I'm, I'm part of is patients sometimes feel very offended because they might have a close friend or family member who just completely distances themselves from them at a time where they feel they should be close to them and supporting them. And I think what they don't realize is that it's actually not about them. It's about the person who is distancing themselves. They just can't cope with the illness. It might trigger memories or trigger thoughts or painful um, thoughts for them. And they tend to just stay away from the patient instead of confronting them. What I did do in the book is, um, and this is why the book is not just for cancer patients themselves, it's also for people that, that surround them. I've tried to provide some practical tips on how best to support someone with cancer and also the things, you know, what to say and what not to say. So to demonstrate it in a simple way is um, when someone would say to me, oh, hi, Ali, how are you? I'd almost want to say to them, you mean besides the fact that I've got cancer? Whereas <laughs> if someone said to you, um, how has your day been or have you had a good week? As a cancer patient, that's so much easier to deal with. And another one is because people don't know what to say. They often say, everything's going to be all right. And that's, that just makes you want to punch him in the face because you want to say, well, when I had my biopsy, everything wasn't all right. I've had numerous curveballs along the cancer experience and, and you know, things aren't always all right. Who are you to know that? All you want is for your fear to be acknowledged. So if you instead just said to someone, gee, it must be really tough. Um, and you, you, I admire your, your tenacity and I just want you to know I'm here for you. That's helpful. And then one, uh, another tip I often give, and this is something I learned from my own experience, is everyone says to you, oh, please let me know if I can do anything. But if you're like me and you're a person that finds it difficult to ask for help, sometimes the things you need help in are very small things and you feel they're almost too trivial to ask for help in. So you tend to just carry on and do them yourself. But one, one friend of mine um, showed, taught me this lesson, and that is that don't ask just do. So no matter how small a thing it is, if you feel you could do something that could take a little bit of stress out of a cancer patient's life, it makes a big difference. And the, the way I learned this lesson was a strange one. I had ordered some wine uh, through a restaurant and it was on my list of things to do. And the restaurant wasn't even far from where I live. 
But when you're going through treatment, little things feel big. And it was on my list and I wasn't getting around to it. And the one day, this friend, um, whose name is Jenny, just sent me a message saying, Ali, I'll be fetching your wine for you today and dropping it off. And I thought, isn't that amazing? And that just took a little, uh, a seemingly big load off my shoulders, although she thought it was such a small load. So just anticipate and just do, don't ask, is what I would um, say to people. Okay, but now this, this also works in, in reverse because when you, when you are living yes. with cancer, it is so easy to withdraw. It is, as you said, you know, difficult for, for, for people to, to ask for help. But surely at this time, when, when you're going through yes. something like this, friends, family, a support group are, are vitally important. Hugely so. And I, I was so incredibly fortunate um, and grateful to have a massive support circle um, of friends and family. Um, and I'm very mindful that not everyone who has cancer may have that. So I feel quite sad um, as an example for people going through chemotherapy right now where they cannot take um, a friend with them or a family member or their partner they, because they're not allowed, you know, only the patients are allowed into the, the chemo suites. And for me, you know, chemo days, believe it or not, were fun days. I had the same friend, Shelley, who came with me every time. And we used to chat and laugh and joke with the nurses and the other patients. It was almost like a little mini partner, a party. But for now, it must be quite a, quite a quiet and, and sad place um, without have, having, uh, being able to have any, any visitors there as well. So yes, I had a huge support system which helped me. But I'm, I'm a type A personality, which means I, I like to be busy and frenetic. And um, I don't like to ask for help. Um, I'm a giver. Um, I battle to take. And my, my friends told me that that was one of the lessons that I needed to learn out of this experience. I needed to just accept graciously. So I used those four words, um, I need some help. For the first time, I think, in my entire life, on hair loss day, because I ended up in the shower trying to gently comb conditioner through my already very vulnerable hair that had started falling out. And as I was combing, all the loose hair was bunching up at the back of my head like a mat of breadlocks. And there was no way I could get a comb or anything through it. So I phoned my friend Sheila and I just said, I need some help. And it was actually so liberating saying those four words. She was at my home in a shot and we took the kitchen scissors and we stood in the entrance hall at the mirror and she literally um, hacked off every bit of hair that I had on my head. And, and we just giggled and laughed as she did it because we knew if we didn't giggle and laugh, we would probably both be in tears. But that was, that was my first experience of really acknowledging to myself that you can say, I need some help. Yeah, and, and, and so important. I mean, I mentioned earlier on that, that you write in the book about, about wigs and, and things like that. And yes. with, with this, this chemo and radiation, side effects are, are massive. I mean, you said that, that, that it was, it was a, 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 like, you know, when you went through your chemo, it was like a bit of a party, but... Um, I've seen firsthand, or firsthand, the after effects of chemo sessions when it just wipes you out. How did you deal with that? So I, I was um, once again very fortunate in that although I felt very different, and there were days where I felt fatigued, I did have a probably a better than average experience with my chemotherapy. And when I had what's commonly known as the the red devil, which is a very toxic kind of chemo. Uh, they gave me a thing called EMED, which is an anti-nausea thing. You, they give you one just before you have the infusion, and then you get two to take home, which you, ha you have one each of the next two days. And that 
really worked for me. So I was never nauseous as such. I never, ever vomited. In contrast to my sister, where who, when she had chemotherapy, was really um, violently ill day in and day out. So there I was fortunate. But, David, the, the time that was really difficult for me was actually the aftermath of the treatment. And that was when um, it was really challenging in many, many respects for that whole year, which was for me 2018. And okay. the... Um, besides trying to deal with the physical ravages of cancer, so trying to grow your hair, I used to hold a little magnifying glass up and look in the mirror to see if any hair was sprouting in my head. Of course, not having eyebrows and eyelashes is just devastating and worse than not having hair in your head, to be frank. Um, my fingernails and my toenails were all um, very, very damaged from the, the second kind of chemotherapy I had had, which is called Pachytaxel. And so I was trying to um, heal those. You know, I used to walk around trying to hold, keep my fingernails hidden from other people because on the one hand, I didn't want to paint chemicals, uh, you know, paint um, them to try and hide them. On the other hand, I didn't want people to see them. And then also um, they say that most cancer patients lose weight with the exception of breast cancer patients. So I had put on weight during my treatment. I didn't, didn't have the benefit of the steroids anymore that you get while you are on chemo. Um, I was battling to exercise, so I just couldn't run as far or as fast as I was able to before my treatment. And in fact, still to this day, I'm, I just can't get the same speed or distance, but I'm still out there, which I suppose is the, the main thing. And um, the other thing is, um, you know, sometimes chemo, uh, cancer patients are on certain drugs in that phase. So I was on a thing called tamoxifen, which is a hormone blocker because my cancer was a hormone-fueled um, cancer which means that um, there are all kinds of side effects like terrible bone ache and joint ache and um, um, sweats and you know, batting to control your body temperature. So there was that. And then at an emotional level, everyone is so excited for you because you've finished your treatment and you're excited too, but you don't quite go back to being the person you were beforehand. So you still, cancer is still so much part of your being. You still try to shake it off, so to speak. And so um, you expect it to continue as before, and you feel like you, you don't want to talk about it and bore your friends all the time, but it's something that's with you all the time, so it weighs quite heavily. In addition, you, you get um, scanxiety, and you've got hypersensitivity toward your body. So any little ache or pain, or um, you know, even if it's a joint ache, you think, oh, well, the cancer spread to my bones now. So you just your, your mind plays trick with, tricks with you. You light night, and you imagine things that are happening that actually aren't happening. And then you always have the fear of a reoccurrence. So the aftermath is, is a, a period that's very difficult for cancer patients, but I don't think people always realize that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very true. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to dive into some of the things you did and some of the things that were said as well a little bit more when we come back. This is what's involved my special guest, Alison Tucker, author of My Best Worst Year, A Breast Cancer Story. Back in a bit. And we're back with my guest, uh, Alison Tucker, author of My Best Worst Year, A Breast Cancer Story. Alison, there's, there's, there's a couple of parts in the book that, uh, that, that, I mean, this is not a medical treatise or, or, or something like that. This is your experience going through cancer and, and what you did and how you dealt with it and lessons that you learned. One part that, that touched me is... is um, I think it was your niece that said that, that you write the book when uh, your hair started growing back and she, she was rubbing your head and going, it's so soft. So soft, it's so soft. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's just, 
one of those moments when you can actually picture something like that and, and you can see how, you know, that, that can have an effect. But on the other side, there's, there's, there's some of the downsides. You attribute a lot of your, your, your sort of growth and, and, and your experience of cancer to the fact that you were determined to keep on working and to, to keep on being fit or moving. Talk to me about that. Yes. Yes. So when, what I did uh, when I was first diagnosed is I contacted um, Discovery Vitality because I wanted leniency for my gym membership. I was worried that I would lose my, uh, my um, preferential gym membership because I wouldn't be able to go to gym or I wouldn't be able to exercise and, and get my points. So they sent me the forms and now I still laugh today because I never needed to send the forms in or to fill them in, in fact. And I managed to achieve my vitality points every single week throughout my experience, except one week. And that was the week of my surgery, which I suppose was to be expected. And that surprised me and surprised other people. And it's not because I'm superhuman. It's just because I got into the mindset that I knew and I'd read that staying active can help in the experience and it can even help your response to treatment. So when, when people say to me, you know, what piece of advice would you give to my friend who's got cancer? I say to them, if you could only give them one piece of advice, just tell them to keep moving. And that doesn't mean they have to go and do a park run like I used to do um, on every Saturday. If all they can do is walk around their house or walk around the block that their house is in, even that is very good. And it's not only really the physical moving, it's just the fresh air and being outdoors. So I had a, a sort of tribe of friends, my back and bean friends, as they're called. And we used to meet down at the beachfront and uh, we used to run together. Or in some days we would call it one, which means run and walk. So as my chemotherapy wore on and I was getting more fatigued, I'd have to walk a little bit more than I, um, than I could run. And then we'd have coffee afterwards. So it became a social thing for me and it, it was it was. It was happy times. Um, it was tough not being able to push myself as I, as I used to push myself. But with time, I got used to the fact that I had to just, you know, listen to my body and do what I could do. So that was useful. And when, you know, I did manage to carry on doing my park runs. And I always joke that um, I did my 50th park run um, during chemo. And 20 out of those 50 were fueled by chemotherapy. But my friends all arrived um, on that day, all arrived dressed in pink you know, being the uh, color associated with breast cancer. And, um, and we had a big celebration afterwards. So, that, so we, we turned activity and exercise into fun times as well. David, I've just mentioned pink. And what I do want to do is at this point is just mention that because of all the pink that's associated with breast cancer, people often think that it's only women that get breast cancer. But it's very important for everyone to know that men do also get breast cancer. So... I, I often use this as an analogy. If you're at a sports stadium and it's filled with men, um, it's a rugby or soccer stadium, for every 828 men sitting there, one uh, will have or will, will get breast cancer. So that's a little known fact, but it's really important for men to know that. Wow, so I do okay. worry that, you know, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month and there's a lot of pink washing and pink everywhere. But um, I think the message, you know, shouldn't get lost that it's not just about a woman and it's not just about October. It's about the whole year being cautious and listening to your body and getting your checks. And, and also doing self checks, I would imagine would, would, would yes. be a good place to, to start off with as well. And just getting to that habit. 
Yes, absolutely, because you get to know your own breast structure, and so you would pick up something, um, and and the thing is that people, you know, women pick it up and they think, oh, it's probably just part of my uh, my menstrual cycle. I wait and see, but if it persists, they really do need to go and get it checked because. Early detection with breast cancer can mean the difference between life or death. If you leave it unchecked and it has metastasized, you automatically become a breast cancer with METS, as I say, um, and that's stage four, and that means that it is not curable, and you will be having treatment and um, battling and struggling with it for the rest of your life, no matter how long or short that may be. So it's, it's res- it is material to, to have those checks and to get tested. Yeah, no, I absolutely, I, I agree with you. As I said, um, I've had uh, family members and friends that have had first-hand experience with, with yeah. cancer and with the ravages of cancer. And that's one of the things, I mean, you, you mentioned that you lost your hair and your eyebrows and eyelashes and, and all of those things. Uh, but how scary is it? Because people, I've noticed, people react differently to the treatments. There's some people that can, can almost fly through them with very little side effects. And others, I mean, I've seen some people and I thought to myself, I never, ever want to go there. Never. How yes. difficult was that for you as well? Because, I mean, you get to see these people. It is quite amazing at how different people react differently, even to the same treatment. So, um, you know, we, and we do compare notes. We sit in the chemo suite and we compare notes as, as patients. And it's a, it's a terrible thing to confess. Best. But we, as you're sitting there and comparing notes, you are trying to compare other circumstances to yourself. So if someone is there with a recurrence and you're chatting to them, you're thinking, you're, you're, the thought behind your question is, how lucky am I to get a recurrence like them? But, um, you know, I, I saw people who, like me, sailed through the, um, the Red Devil chemo. Um, and I saw people who were really, really sick in the Red Devil. And then the same people who may have been... Um, really sick while having the red devil would move to the next kind of chemo, which is supposedly less toxic and they would then be um, very ill. So it is so unpredictable. It's really a very individual thing. And that's why um, supporters should never expect that, you know, I, I worry that about writing this positive experience in my book, I do worry that people may read it and say, and expect all of the, um, the friends or family who have cancer to also have such a positive experience. You know, I want them to realize that it is an individual thing. But at the same time, there are things you can do to help lighten the experience and to try and fare um, better than, than perhaps you, um, you would without trying, trying some tricks. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's one thing that, that I liked in the book is, is you, you give people uh, a lot of tips and, and, and things that you've learned along the way. Um, we spoke about wigs briefly, but yes. uh, things like makeup, uh, makeup tips, things like that. These are all things that are, are, are vitally important. But number one, you don't think about it before you have discovered that you're living with cancer. And number two, whilst you're living with cancer, it's probably not something that's top of your mind. No. And I had had the same hairstyle for all of my 50-odd years. And um, it was probably part of my signature. So it was a shock of um, blonde. I was blonde right from the time I was uh, born, basically. So it was wavy, long blonde hair. And um, so losing, and I probably used to hide behind that hair. So losing it, I was petrified of. But when the day I lost my hair, um, finally, it was, I almost felt liberated. And the odd thing is that a lot of women who go through it do feel, use, use the same word, liberated, when they, once they've lost it. I don't know if it's because you fear it so much when it happens, it's a relief, or whether you just feel light in the head, 
or yeah, yeah, I felt totally liberated. And um, I then started uh, wearing wigs uh, and I was very nervous and I wanted a wig as close to my current hairstyle as possible. The reality is, is that I started having so much fun with the wigs that I ended up, um, a friend from Australia sent me her pink and platinum. I had all different wigs and I would just choose a different one on the day, depending on the mood. And each one had a name. So there was Coco and Chloe. And then the best one of all was my one I used to exercise with, where it was a little, just a mock fringe. So I had a bit of hair across the forehead and a little bit down the sides. And it was attached to a, a, like a stocking band that you wore around your head. And then I used to put a, just a turban over that. And that would be what I exercised in. I was a bit too nervous to cycle down to the beachfront or to run with a wig on in case um, I lost it along the way. But my cap and Holly, the, the fake fringe, worked very, very well for that. So I had a lot of fun uh, with the wigs. I, I'm, I'm absolutely blown away about, about the, you know, the, the positivity that, that you're bringing to it. Because it is. It's, it's, we, and we've mentioned this. It's, it's life-changing. We are running out of time. When we come back, though, uh, I'd like to wrap up and I'd like to, to get your take on why you called it your best worst year. So we'll do all of that when we come back. It is What's Involved. My special guest is Alison Tucker. And we're back. What's Involved with Alison Tucker, author of My Best Worst Year, a breast cancer story, wrapping it up. So, Alison, why the title? Let's talk about that. David, um, what I really expected to be my, my worst, the worst year of my entire life turned out to be the best. I, w I wouldn't say the best year of my entire life, but a very, very good year and much, much better than I expected. So that's why I, I used it as a working title. In fact, I just called my writing my best first year. And then when Tracy and I started having discussions and uh, we were going to publish the book, you know, I thought it was just a working title, but actually it seemed to resonate and it seemed to resonate with others. So um, one of my friends said, oh, why don't you call it my breast worst year to, to make it a bit quirky? And I said, I didn't think it quite fitted the positioning of the book because although the book is lighthearted, it wasn't a sort of comical take as such. So, um, so yes, Tracy and I both thought that, that it would work and um, I've had very positive response to it, so, which is great. And I, I hope that it will show to, uh, people that a cancer diagnosis is not the, the end of the world and that um, in many cases you can lead a very productive life um, and you can have an enjoyable time even during the tough times of undergoing treatment. Indeed, indeed. Now, one of the things, though, that, that you, you, you mentioned, and I, I would think this is the part of the best part of the year, is personal growth experiences that you had. Gratitude is one of the things that you, that you spoke it's, about. Talk to me a little bit about that. So I've, I've always been a glass-half-full kind of person. So I've, I guess it's a gift to... Uh, often be able to see things in a positive light. But, um, you know, they say that feeling gratitude and not expressing it is like wrapping a gift up and not giving it to someone. Part of the expressing gratitude is being able to accept the love and support first. So for me, I had this mantra, um, which I picked up somewhere along the lines and I can't find, uh, I can't find someone to attribute it to, but it was inhale love and exhale gratitude. So I tried to really embrace all the love and support I got, but in exchange for that, then exhale gratitude. And um, it's something I try to keep up to this day. 
But, you know, if I am going through a little uh, bad patch, I'll remind myself that perhaps I've forgotten to take that moment to think about what I'm grateful for on the day. And, um, you know, because I don't keep the diary as such anymore. I try to do it on a more um, sort of informal basis just for myself. But what I also love is that the fact that this did inspire other people to gratitude practices. So one of which is a friend of mine who, in fact, is also an author. Um, she wrote um, An Elephant in My Kitchen with, with Francois um, from Tudor Tudor. And she, she lives in France, and she said that her and her husband had started a gratitude practice where every night before they had their evening meal together at the table, they would each say what they were grateful for, which I thought was beautiful. And then I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if every family just had a blackboard painted on a, a wall in their home with a piece, pieces of chalk lying close by where family members could just write up on the gratitude wall you know, what they're grateful for? Because just reminding yourself of positive things, it's almost impossible to feel depressed if you're in a state of gratitude. So I think it's a good state to try and try and be in. It doesn't mean to say you're not going to have bad days, you're not going to acknowledge them, but it does say that maybe they'll be a little bit less daunting if you can try and um, feel the gratitude. Wonderful stuff. And, and it's, it's, it's very, very sound advice. And that's part of, of, of what I enjoyed about the book is that it's filled with different moments, but it, it is all about advice and, it, and it's, it's your story. Now, what is where is Alison now in terms of uh, in terms of number one the cancer, but in terms of where's your head at? I mean, are you are you yes. going? What is your next? So so let's let's look so at that. So from a cancer perspective, I've now I've graduated to six monthly checkups. So it, for the first two, I'm three years out of treatment now, and I'm still what they would call NED, so no evidence of disease. For the first two years, I had a blood, a blood test and um, an oncologist uh, appointment and, and consultation every three months. And of course, every three months, you get that rising anxiety in that week and then the big relief um, when things are okay. Then now I've moved to um, six monthly checkups um, and, and blood tests. And I did also just have a bone scan um, not so long ago just to check my bones because I have uh, I've got a sore hip. But, um, and a sore wrist, but I think that's all to do with the, you know, probably the side effects of drugs and previous sports in injuries. Um, so from a cancer point of view, you know, they, when you diagnose, you realize um, your life will always be divided into BC and AC, before cancer and after cancer. So it's always going to be there. Once you're a cancer patient, you're a cancer patient for life. So I will, I'll keep that title forever. But I do hope that I can continue in good health as I am now. At a personal level, um, part of writing the book was about trying to express gratitude for positive experience and to do some good. So what I'm doing is um, the books that I'm selling direct to people um, that I ordered through Tracy, all the profits from those books go directly into more books that are distrib distributed through the Breast Health Foundation um, for women who are diagnosed. So that's a, a charitable act. And um, I also hope I have a, a talk that I've constructed about how gratitude turns gratitude to great, which is my breast cancer story, but also with a big focus on how gratitude helps. So I hope to be able to offer that um, as well as, as a source of inspiration for, for other people. Um, yeah. So, and then I'm still consulting. So I'm still, uh, still have my own business and I'm still continuing um, consulting. So it's, and still exercising and still loving life. Before I, I let you go, there's, there's two things. First and foremost, if people want to get hold of this book, 
where is the best place to go? Is it available in bookstores online? Yes, so um, globally it's accessible via um, Amazon and the likes of Amazon as an um, ebook for Kindle, which is great because I've had so many people from um, the UK and from Australia getting in touch, actually asking where they can get the book. And then um, locally it's also available in paper version and in all good bookstores, so um, through um, Tracy McDonald Publishers. And if people don't see it automatically, they'll find it in the biography section. Fantastic. Okay. Um, well, Alison, thank you so much. My final question uh, before I let you go is, how is the kitty cat? Oh, my kitty cat? Um, as I'm sitting here, Kimber is lying on the chair in my office. She's my assistant here in the office most days when I'm doing desk work. And, um, yeah, Kimber is the delight of my life. And, um, yeah, very, very special cat with... I think I probably told the story in the book of how she arrived in my home, but I leave that for readers to find themselves. Yes, you see, that's the thing. There's a couple of things I just wanted to keep a little bit secret here, um, but I, I think it's I think it's so cool. Um, we we have a cat here as well, and uh, it's, he's a male. His name is Duke, uh, and he has he's been nicknamed the chairman because as soon as I stand up uh, from my desk, your chair. he's on the chair. Um, and generally, when I'm, when I'm recording uh, podcasts or, or radio shows like this, he's actually on top of the desk and, and he stares intently at the microphone. So he's convinced he helps me. So this is a good I think I think I should call Kimber Keyboard Kimber because she, <laughs> she likes the keyboard. So she loves lying over my hands. Yeah. Um, they are, are very, very, very friends, really a big part of our life. Um, and uh, David, are we, are we, we completed the on-air bit, have we? Um, well, we're about to complete the on-air bit where I say thank you so much. <laughs> oh, thank you very, very much. It was lovely, lovely chatting. It was fantastic. Uh, that was my special guest, Alison Tucker, author of My Best Worst Year, A Breast Cancer Story. It's a great book. Uh, go out and read it. If you know anybody that uh, has cancer, is living with cancer, it's definitely well worth them uh, having a read. That's Alison Tucker, My Best Worst Year. A breast cancer story. This is what's involved. Thank you for listening.